This is the Sports Aid Vault podcast with me, Tom Gale. And me, Dominic Mensah. Each month, we'll be joined by one of Britain's most talented young sports stars as they share the story behind their achievements so far. We'll find out what drives them to succeed and what it takes to reach the podium. We'll also discover more about the person behind the athletes, their early years, and future ambitions. This month's guest is a British power swimmer who competes in the S14 classification. She is 20 years old and already has European and World Championship titles to her name. She made her senior international debut at the World Para Swimming European Champs in 2018, winning gold in the 100m breaststroke. A year later, she was crowned world champion on home soil in London in the same event. And this summer, she'll hopefully be flying the flag in Tokyo at those slightly delayed Paralympic Games. It's Louise Fiddies. So, Dom, we're back for episode four, episode three, our last guest, Lotte. Mm-hmm. Not sure you've been tracking her progress, but she only won and scored for Arsenal against Manchester United and won Player of the Month. Who's taking most props for that? Is that me or you? Or is that are you going to share that one? <laughs> I think we could both take the credit for that. You know, um, Lotte was obviously really, really amazing on the podcast. And, you know, ever since... Um, that episode with her, um, she gave me the follow back on Instagram. So we've been following yeah. each other. I've been keeping track of her progress. And yeah, she's been amazing. Obviously, the goal against United, the winning goal, the player of the month. I think um, Arsenal women's, they've kept, you know, more than 10 clean sheets in a row or some ridiculous clean sheet record. So yeah, she's been brilliant. So I think um, the Sports Aid Vault has um, contributed to that success. We'll take that. And you, are you ready for this little dig that the Arsenal women have qualified for Champions League and the men have just... The less we say about that one, the better, yeah. But that's what we do, isn't it? We get the big athletes who, fitness mm-hmm. and illness permitting, they're doing their thing on the sports mm. field. But what about your good self? I know it's been a bit busy time at uni and how's tumbling going and training and just like many other elite athletes just juggling that whole mad lifestyle you've got going on yeah yeah so the lifestyle's been crazy university's taken up a lot of my time you know trying to balance an internship that I'm doing as well um but in terms of actual training training's been going well I've had a couple of niggles and things like that but we've got um a couple of dates to look forward to um looking forward to linking up with the GB squad for a little training camp and then on June the 23rd I believe it is we're having like a little club competition so that's when you know a lot of the younger kids their parents could just come in and just give something um everyone something to look forward to so um those are sort of two kind of key dates that i'm working towards so yeah we're we're starting to pick it up a little bit which is good and of course obviously at the time of recording still indoor sports are capped aren't they as regards to what you do so tumbling that's a that's a big huge step forward for you well i'm really excited about today louise a paris swimmer uh gonna get stuck into it but just Interestingly, you know, we're sitting here recording two black boys. Um, mm-hmm. What's you know? The, it, I think it's not not surprising to know that swimming is not very diverse. What was your your background, if any, with with getting in the water and getting stuck in? Yeah, with swimming, I was a bit of a late starter. Um, the first time I really properly had like swimming lessons was when I went to secondary school around year seven. Um, I went to St Thomas the Apostle College um, in Peckham in Nunhead, um, and we were lucky enough to have a pool, so that was kind of my first experience. But I kind of learnt like the basics so you know your front core your backstroke but not like how to like float and really like kind of really really swim if that makes sense it was just mm-hmm. literally the basics and and I do think you know obviously um within the black community you know the sports that are most popular are your footballs your um, athletics obviously basketball over in America and so on and so forth so I think you know the representation is lacking but hopefully it's something you know that can sort of be pushed in the right direction you know as the years come by as the generations come through. Yeah, well, my dad's my dad sort of was born and raised in Jamaica, and he couldn't swim. So one of his first demands on me and my brother was to, you know, <laughs> you're not going to be like me because I think he did feel mm. rather guilty that that held him back. So we were like literally fish till water, and we wow. both swam competitively. But I'll be honest with you, I'm probably this is something we'll get stuck in with Louise. The the monotony of I say this ironically that I went on to do running, and that's running around <laughs> in tracks. But that yeah. mental capacity to swim up and down continuously, I, I do think mm-hmm. that when the going got tough, I just I just wasn't cut out for it. But it is like you say, it's a very interesting point. Particularly, obviously, I, I follow swimming at the big stage, and Aaliyah Atkinson, she's a Jamaican, she's a world champion, she's an wow. Olympic medalist. So, you know, I think big for see it and you can believe it. It's going to be slow progress, but hopefully, swimming is going to be becoming more and more diverse as we're recording this is mid-may and those olympic and paralympic games they're they're only a couple of months 
away. What's your thoughts, Dom, as regards to because, you know, the news coming out of Tokyo is it's it's all going ahead. We know no fans, but are you confident that we'll be seeing the greatest Olympians and Paralympians on show in the next few months? I really sincerely hope so. You know, as an athlete, um, I feel for all the guys that have been constantly grafting for the past four years plus one, because obviously it has um, been postponed and, you know, for that to be cancelled, sort of that those four years of hard work kind of go down the drain. Um, so that would be the worst thing, you know, as somebody with more of a business mind with my university and course, you know, the, all the media, the sponsors, you know, everyone kind of relies on this Olympics to go ahead. You know, the big media companies, your BBCs, they show it, sponsors and brands and so on and so forth, rely on it to kind of show their brand and their services. So everybody really, really needs this to go ahead. So, you know, Hopefully, really, really hoping for everybody involved that it can go ahead and the whole world can really just enjoy this Olympic Games and the hard work of all the athletes, especially. And I'm not going to get you to name names or anything. I don't want to expose anyone, but with your work as an elite athlete, but also with representation and the commercial side, are you hearing any rumours from any athletes that they're just not sure about it or they're maybe doubting whether or not they want to go and compete in Tokyo? I haven't personally. I haven't, but... Um, just speaking on a theoretic sort of assuming kind of um, point of view, you know, I know all of the athletes will hopefully be super, super keen in the gym working. I know in the gymnastics world, um, they've just kind of finished their Olympic trials and stuff like that. And I don't think, you know, anybody who was unsure of going would have trialed, you know. I know all of them want that golden ticket to compete at, you know, the biggest stage in sports. So, you know, I hope all of them are very, very keen despite um, the uncertainties at the moment. Okay, Dom, so excited. Another stellar guest we we are delighted to have listened to this, right? Okay. So, will Paris swimming European champion, then a year later on her own backyard in London, world champion? We are delighted to have the one, the only, the 100 meter breaststroke world champion in the S14, Louise Fiddies. How are you doing, Louise? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Did you like that intro? Did I give you enough? Was that was that enough props to sort of... I know elite athletes sometimes is a bit of ego. I just want to make sure that we've ticked all those boxes. I've not missed off a title or anything like that. No, that's all of them. That's all of them. So how are you doing? How are you... Well, first and foremost, thanks for joining us. But I guess the big thing is Tokyo is months away at the time of recording. You've done what is the trials. The technically, selection's not official, but you perform very well at those and fingers crossed you could become a Paralympian for the very first time this summer how are you feeling about all that I mean I'm nervous obviously but really excited um it's not quite been the year I was hoping with training and everything but for considering how much training I've done I'm I'm in a really good place so. well just talk us through that because I think anyone listening we, you know we've all lived through a pandemic haven't we in a variety of experiences but this is about elite sport and elite athletes journey how how is how has things been very difficult for you over the past 18 months obviously the first lockdown was hard because I've never really done any like land training um but because it was fresh it wasn't too bad like I was I was quite motivated to do it. Um, but as time went on, I was less and less inclined to like do all the land training. Cause you know, I signed up to swim, not to jog on the spot. Um, yeah, yeah. And then obviously we came out of the, the first lockdown and I actually felt like I benefited from having a bit of the time out of the pool. Um, because before that I've never had more than two weeks outside the pool for like six years. So that was quite a shock. But then the second lockdown came and I really struggled with that because it was like the same thing again. And then I really felt that I hadn't quite done everything that I should have done. It was just really hard to motivate myself. And then this last one, I had the opportunity to go to Manchester, um, which was really difficult because I had to go away from my family. And that was the longest time I've ever been away from my family. And I was living in this really small apartment and it was because it, it was still in lockdown, it was really, really strict. We couldn't be anywhere close to each other. We were all kind of too far away to have a conversation. So I felt quite alone because um, we'd have to walk home separately to the hotel and then we'd all go there separately and we'd all have our own individual sessions. And I really struggled with that. But it was definitely worth going because I was able to swim for those four months or so, um, which has then put me in a lot better position now when I've come back to training at my home club. Um, but it made me appreciate home so much more. Like 
my home coach, my home program, my SNC team, like everything. Um, so that's kind of nice in a sense because you kind of take it all for, like for granted. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny um, how you mention um, only having maximum of about two weeks um, away from the pool um, in about six years. Because, you know, in my background in gymnastics, elite gymnastics, we're the same. We pretty much train all year round. We may have like two weeks off in like maybe the beginning of summer before building up towards, you know, the British champs in September, you know, major champs later in the year. So I really, really do relate to um, that feeling of never really having any time off. So when lockdown came and we were having four months off before going back, it was a really, really um, big shock. And I think it's so great that you mentioned how to be so appreciative of that support network. So your SNC coach, your home coaches, you know, your home venue to train in because all of those sort of home comforts make kind of coming back a lot easier and actually getting into some stride, hopefully before you head out to Tokyo, fingers crossed, um, and get you really in, in good spirits for that. But Louise, we wanted to take you right back to the start. So what was the kind of introduction into swimming as a competitive sport? You know, did you start, you know, quite young like myself or did you kind of find the sport a bit later? What's the story? Um, so when I was really young, my my brother actually almost drowned. My parents were really big just on me to learn to swim. Um, and then I almost drowned. So then they pushed it a lot more um, and got me into a proper club. And the, it was a small club, but it was called like Welling Garden City and it was really close to my house. And from there, I just got more and more competitive and I just really enjoyed the just the club and the sport where like especially with my like intellectual impairment I really struggled to do other sports and with swimming for somehow it just came so naturally to me um and then I really started to struggle at school and it made me feel very self-conscious I didn't really feel like I was the same as everyone else I felt really different I was like why am I putting in so much effort and doing so much worse um and I was in like the bottom sets for everything. And the only thing that really gave me the confidence to carry on was the swimming because I could get into the pool. I wouldn't have to say too much. I wouldn't have to do maths or English, but I could do something that I could like excel at. And was very lucky at my school, we had a pool. So I was able to then kind of be like, oh look, I can do something too situation, which just made, school just so much easier to get through and then my passion sort of really started to grow and my first club that I joined they were really pushing me to join to a more like bigger larger competitive club so then I joined Hatfield and that's the club that I'm at now and I slowly worked up my rank through all the different squads and now I'm in the top squad and I've been there I think for six years and so I must have been swimming I don't, know. I don't know how long I've been swimming but um I've been there for ages and ever since I've been over Hatfield that's where it's really started to progress um and then with the actually getting part of Team GB I had to get classified first um which was a difficult situation because we wasn't 100% sure if I'd like make it into the classification and it was kind of all done on my parents' back. It wasn't really supported by British Swimming because they didn't really know who I was. And then once I started going to para competitions, um, I started getting recognised and I was on the England programme. And then you like move up all the different programmes, the British programme. And yeah, that's where I am today. Just yeah. a couple of things that just jump out there, just first and foremost. Are you and your brother some sort of daredevils? Because there's this massive props to your mum and dad that you're still alive and kicking. The fact that both of you almost drowned. Did he pass on that gene of craziness and just trying to jump into war? Is that is that how it all started? Yeah, he when he was really young, he well, they were at a pool and one end was like really deep, and he was just like, oh, yeah, I am just gonna jump in, and he just <laughs> that looks <he> just sunk. <laughs> Um, and then, and of course, you saw that, and for yeah, that 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 you know, my brother did it. So, <laughs> yeah. And so you you talked about, and this is a sometimes a you can't classify all athletes together, but finding that identity outside of school at times through sport and your passion. So, can you just perhaps just expand a bit if you feel comfortable? Was was school quite an uncomfortable experience for you, as you perhaps alluded to, until you found swimming? Yeah. Um... 
I just, every day was like such a struggle. Um, like socially, because I struggled to kind of like understand people's like emotions. And I was like, are they angry at me? Are they having a laugh? Is that a joke? Are they having a go at me? And so that was really difficult and confusing. And then alongside that, I had obviously my grades were slipping and the teachers obviously trying to really push that. And I was like, I am really trying. And it was so difficult to be like, I spent two hours on this piece of homework and they're telling me that I didn't spend more than 10 minutes. And I'm like, I'm really, really trying. Like it was hard because it didn't feel like anyone was like listening or hearing me. And to then go away from that on the same day and be able to swim and go from being like, oh my goodness, well done, you you did this, and that was incredible, and, and for my age in that club, I was really, like, good, and the club were just so supportive, and it just really gave me the confidence that I needed, because I think without that, I would have probably dropped out of school, because I just wouldn't have felt like I could do anything, so yeah, it was, it was a difficult time, and but I'm glad I had had sport to kind of really push me through. We can all arguably relate about school. It's about fitting in, isn't it? You know, everyone wants to be popular and stuff. How did your relationship with peers and friends change before swimming came along to once you found swimming and this new confidence and undoubtedly some form of respect, wasn't it? Because people were seeing that you were, you know, you were extremely talented in, in swimming. Yeah, it helped massively because, I mean, it, I couldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk to anyone at all. I just wouldn't have the confidence to speak to anyone. So then to actually talking to people was obviously going to really help making friends. And then having like, there was like a walk polo swimming club at, at the school. And there was a few girls that did that and we became really close friends. And then as the years progressed through school, we just became like this small, really tight group. And it was really lovely. Yeah. You know, you spoke about sort of sport just being that safe haven and a place for you to really, really gain confidence. You know, you know, for me, my my circumstances, you know, weren't close to yours. You had your own individual um, circumstances. But for me, when I look back on my life, um, my confidence um, and my sort of belief in myself comes from that sport, comes from a sport. You know, I was already quite confident as a kid, but obviously gymnastics helped to really, really grow that. Um, and even though our circumstances are a little bit different, I feel like we can kind of relate to that. So I'm so happy, you know, you managed to find swimming so young. Um, um, and really, really gain that confidence because, you know, it helped you so much, you know, make that period just a little bit easier. Um, so you spoke about sort of your youthful upbringing in swimming. When did you really, really start to sort of become competitive and maybe see yourself, you know, winning medals at domestic and maybe hopefully like you are now international events? When did you when did that kind of shift go in your head that, you know, I really want to start not just doing this for fun, but really trying to, you know, compete and, you know, maybe be the best in the world one day like you are now? I mean, when I was really, really young, um, I always had this drive to be the best. And I remember my mum telling me, oh, it's like, it's unlikely. And I was, because I was so, so young. And I remember like bursting into tears. I was really upset. Um, so I've always had this drive and I'm not really sure why, but once I got classified and seeing myself on the, like the leaderboard in the world and not being too far off from the best, that was probably where I was like, okay, I really need to take this seriously. I need to up my sessions. I need to up my recovery. I need to improve my nutrition. And it was it was literally probably when I got classified was the big moment for me to be like, yeah, I need to take this seriously. What age was that that you got classified? Um, I was, I think I was 15. 15 at the time. Yeah. Okay, cool. So in five years you've been classified now, you know what classification you are. So now you can really just go full throttle, like you said, you know, up the recovery, up the training and, you know, push yourself to really be amongst the world's elite, which you now are. So that's really, really good to hear. Great insight. Can you talk us through classification, Louise? Because I think with all due respect, sometimes, you know, para-sport can be quite complicated because there's a variety of, of, of you know, of, of classifications. Talk us through for you. So you're an S14, so that's an intellectual impairment. So was that, did that come about because of your academics? Was there, a, was there obviously evidence there that you then put into a sporting setting to suggest that I might be suited to this category? Can you talk us through how that initial conversation came about? Um, yeah, so I struggled at school, but 
my parents didn't realize that there was such a thing as like S14. Um, and they just kind of thought it was just like small learning difficulties and nothing too major. Um, it was actually when I was moved to Hatfield was when one of the other parents knew about the classification and they were like, oh, we really like suggest that you look into it. And then, then my dad did and we spoke to a few psychologists and they were like, we're not sure, we wouldn't suggest it. Um, but then my dad went through with it anyway. Um, How do they assess you as, uh, you know, in regards to your abilities and suitable for a classification in parasport, yeah. How do they do that? Um, so you have to see, like, a specific psychologist and they then do, like, a bunch of, like, IQ tests to then get you an IQ score. And then they also talk to my parents about my, you know, my development as I grew up. So from when, you know, how old was I when I learned to walk? And that was, like, significantly, like later than everyone else and it was just all these small pieces that they all like put together to give me this this score what has to be less than 75 um to get the actual classification um but basically it's just like a bunch of like puzzles and how how do you feel during this whole thing were you anxious about it were you like oh i need this i need i want to be it or you because I think it's, it's it's just quite difficult, you know, with all due respect for me to sort of try and someone to want to put you into a box. Did you want to be put into that box? Because you then were like, okay, it all makes sense now. Or you were maybe, did you want that label of being a, being a para-athlete? Because um, I was 15 at the time when I got my first like classification, I absolutely hated it. I, I actually argued with my dad. I was like, no, I don't want this. I don't want this because I was so desperate because I was in that school environment to be the same as everyone yeah, else. Of course, I, yeah, of course. I just wanted to, like, blend in. And by doing this, it kind of made me stand out. And my dad was like, you know, it's for the best. You know, this could really help you. You really should do it. And, like, literally, it was in Leeds that... So we had to... I live in, like, Welling Garden City, so it was quite a drive. And the entire drive, I was not happy about it at all. And I did the test and... When I'm doing the test, I feel like not to, I don't mean to be rude, but like stupid because I, there's like people in the room watching me and I'm like, oh, they probably know the answer. And I'm there, I'm like struggling. And it takes like a few weeks for it to come through. And I was so, I was like, I mean, I, it's odd because at school I did feel different. I was like, surely no one else feels like, like I do. Surely no one else is struggling as much as I do. So, it was kind of a surprise, but kind of not. Like, I think subconsciously I kind of knew there was something there, but I just didn't want to admit it. Um, but as time, you have to do multiple of these. So you, you have your classification within England and then you have your international classification. And then, so to be an S14 is so different to any of the other classes. So I have to do three classifications before I'm 18 and then that's it, I'm an S14 for life, um, where all the other classifications, they have to get classified every two to three years. Um, so once I actually had the classification, after a year or so when I had to do another one, um, I was much more accepting of it. And because I was actually in that team environment, and I absolutely, like, I love being part of Team GB, and, like, all the athletes are so supportive and so lovely, and... It just doesn't matter that I was like, you know what, now I really want this. I really want to be part of this. I really want to be part of this like Paralympic movement. I really I really want to make a difference kind of situation. Yeah. It's it's brilliant that you say, you know, it's kind of very, very good for any athletes listening that may not be happy with a circumstance, you know, as a 15-year-old or however old they are, that you can sort of grow to love and accept something about yourself, you know, something that, you know, you didn't do to yourself, it just so happened to fall on you. But, you know, you take the circumstances with such grace and, you know, you really, really use it to push yourself in, you know, Paris swimming now. And I think it's so important and it's a great message how important your parents can be because, you know, first of all, your parents got you into swimming and then they kind of took it further and suggested that, you know, OK, you may have um, 
may have to get classified. You weren't too keen on getting classified, but they pushed said, no, we're going to do these tests. We're going to make sure things are right for you. And even though you couldn't see it at the time, they could see it and they helped to sort of push you in the right direction that has now led to, you know, you being, you know, a para swimmer and, you know, one of the best world para swimmers at that. So um, I think it's so important to have that support network first and also being patient with yourself and any circumstances that you do have, you can learn to love and accept and still flourish with. So I think that's um, a great, great message. Man, I can't stop. This may be the first time you're hearing about Sports Aid, so let me give you a quick snapshot into what the charity does. They've supported over a thousand of the country's brightest sporting prospects each year, the vast majority aged between 12 to 18. The athletes are nominated to Sports Aid by governing bodies of more than 60 sports, and the award they receive acts as a real motivational boost. It is often the first recognition they're given outside of their support network. The athletes benefit from a financial award to help towards the cost of their sport as well as being able to access specialist workshops and personal development opportunities. Well, since 1976, Sports Aid has supported tens and thousands of athletes at the very start of their journey, long before they became household names. Their illustrious alumni include Olympic and Paralympic legends such as Jessica Anisale, Mo Farah, Tani Gray-Thompson, Sarah Story and Steve Redgrave. More recently, we've got the likes of Laura Kenny, Ellie Simmons, Adam Peaty, Tom Daly and Dina Asher-Smith. If you'd like to help the next generation of British sporting heroes to follow in their footsteps, please visit sportsaid.org.uk to find out more about how you can make a difference. Just to move on to sort of now the present day, what's like a daily routine for you? Like, you know, are you an early riser? Are you training three, four times a day? You know, let's go, let's talk about sort of pre-COVID and maybe a lot like your pre-COVID daily routine. What was that kind of like? To be honest, now it's it's pretty similar to my like my COVID routine and my pre-COVID mm. routine. So I get up at 4.30. Um, oh, we leave the house at 4.45, so up and go because... I like my sleep, so I, I want to be as awake for as like short amount of time. Um, we do like fifteen minutes like pre pull, so like stretching, rollering, self massage, all of that, and then we'd get in. At the moment, we're not allowed to do the um, uh, pre pull, so mm-hmm. we just have to get straight in. Yeah. And we swim for two hours, and then we get out, and then I go home. Yeah, so I take like an hour nap, and then I have gym. And watch just for an hour. And then straight after gym, I do another two-hour session in the pool. And that's roughly my average day. Just with with COVID, when I'm allowed to do the pre- and post-pool. Um, yeah. But hopefully we'll be allowed to do that. Because at the moment, we have to do it outside. And if it's raining, it's not very nice. Um, yeah, of course. And you talk about that pre- and post-pool and not being able to do that. How does that kind of affect your recovery? And, you know, do you really, really feel the difference in not doing those sessions in like recovery and stuff like that how does that kind of affect you yeah I mean since I've been back I've already had three injuries so mm-hmm. wow it's just because my body's not prepared to get into the pool and then the post pool I'm not you know recovering my body properly so it just puts me at such a higher risk of getting an injury which then obviously slows down my rate of like improvement and then if I can't, you know, kick because I've hurt my leg, then I can't swim breaststroke, and then I have to do something else, and it's a little bit frustrating, but it's still doable. Wow, very, very, um, very, very busy. I noticed that you're an early, early riser. You know, waking up at four thirty. Like, what age did you kind of start doing that? Or is that something you've always done since you joined Hatfield? You know, at fifteen, or is that something that's been more recent? As you know, you've kind of got more elite, and obviously, um, as an adult, um, and elite swimmer now. Um, it was basically from when I was 15 years old. Um, I didn't do as many morning sessions, um, but as I've got older, we've increased them so that I get more time in the pool. Yeah. I was going to say the parent in me is having nightmares about the prospect of getting up at that time. But have you got any tricks to the trade? I know I used to do a lot of running and I guess an early run for me was half six. And I ain't going to lie, in my uni days, I'd perhaps sometimes sleep in my running kit. So I'd be straight out the door, you know, any any few, you know, get that snooze alarm going. What's your tricks to the trade as regards? So if anyone's out there, maybe contemplating those 5am rises or thinking about it, what's your key things to making sure that you're not late for training? Because that's no one wants that. Um, for me, I gotta get out of bed straight away. There's no, there's no yeah. snooze. As soon as I press snooze, that's it. It's game over. Um, <laughs> you gotta, gotta get out. Everything needs to be already ready. 
everything needs to be as easy as possible. So my breakfast is already prepared, my clothes are all on the side, my bags are already packed. It's gotta be so easy, otherwise I'll just trip up at the first hurdle. <laughs> you know, in your time sort of since you joined Hatfield at obviously 15, where did kind of education and like maybe work now that um, you're older kind of fit into all of this? Like, does that play a part in your sort of daily routine? So, yeah. So I was obviously at school and then I went to college. Um, because it's so early and we finish quite early in the morning, I'd have a big chunk of my day still available. Um, so I'd get home roughly about eight o'clock and I wouldn't need to leave until about like 4.30, so I've got quite a big chunk. Um, so I'd be able to fit college in or school, whatever. Currently I'm not working, um, but I'm I'm waiting to pass my driving test. And then once wow. I've done that, I'm looking at doing like some personal training. Nothing too heavy, just enough to like keep me going, get a little bit more income and stuff like that. Nice, nice. Yeah, good luck for the driving test. I mean, I was one of them. It took two times around for me. I kind of um, flunked the first one, a bit of nerves. So I know how you feel it in that respect. So massive, massive good luck for the driving test. With, you know, all of these commitments, the early rises, you know, then having to go to school, you know, obviously even fitting in your driving lessons and stuff like that, it must come with a lot of fatigue, both physically and mentally. How do you kind of deal with those, you know, um, physical and mental fatigues and, you know, just keep pushing week after week? um in what you're doing mostly sleep napping mm. um really really helps and then just like downtime just for because like you said like mentally i do get really exhausted um so if that's you know taking the dogs out for a walk or even just like sitting with the dogs and just having a little cuddle watching a movie just like really basic relaxing things um i love having baths uh, <laughs> when i was in manchester for months ice baths or hot baths which oh, one? Hot baths, hot baths. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. Um, I thought so. Always want to go to a hotel. That's like the biggest thing. I'm like, do they have a bath? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Nah, that's brilliant. No, that's brilliant. And I like how those sort of techniques, they help you physically, but also mentally as well, because a lot like things like sleep, obviously sleep is obviously a sort of physical recovery, but I think the mental aspects and benefits of sleep and napping, I'm a big napper. I always have like an hour nap before training, half an hour nap before training. And I think something like that is so good to kind of just detox physically and mentally because the life of an athlete, you know, obviously everybody is going to see the medals, the fame, the amazing performances, but you know, the weekends, week outs of just hard work and that physical and mental fatigue and trying to manage that and find it techniques to manage that can be so draining. Um, and that kind of leads to my next question, you know, with this routine, I, you know, I'm sure there's been sort of down points in the journey and so on and so forth. You know, have you ever found yourself at a point where you feel like, I don't really want to do this? Have you ever fell out of love with the sport or have you always, you know, stayed on a straight and narrow and always kept pushing no matter how tough it got? Um, I've not had a, like a really low point, but there has obviously been low points. Um, mostly if I do have a low point, it's, it's having a, a conversation with my coach being like, you know, I'm not really feeling it. I'm not sure, you know, mentally, am I strong enough to be an elite athlete? Because if you're not there, like, if you're not strong enough mentally, it can be really tough because, you know, you need to, no matter how tired you are, you need to get up, you need to go do that session. Yeah, that maybe the session before didn't go very well. Maybe this one won't either, but, you know, you need to put in that work. Even if the, the results aren't there initially, you know, you need to keep going and especially with COVID coming back and everyone's like congratulating me for getting the qualifying times. But for me, that was a really terrible time. And I and I finished that race and I was so disappointed and I was kind of like, oh, am I ever going get, to get back to where I was kind of situation? And it's really, it's the staff around me that really helped. They're like, we obviously have psychologists, but it's mostly my home program coach at Hatfield that really picks me up and he's like you know you have this you got this you know you've done it before and you know you're so much of a like better athlete now I, I know how to recover properly I know what I need to be eating I know how much I need to be hydrating and I have the knowledge now it's just obviously everyone has low points and it's just having that support around you to to keep you going through those low points 
Louise, you've, you've talked a lot about recovery and you being an S14 athlete and Dom's rightfully touched on it. All athletes have mental fatigue as well. But correct me if I'm wrong, I think sometimes the, what you struggle with is memory recall, isn't it? And remembering things. And can you perhaps talk about how your classification plays a role that, you know, in, in the way you approach training and how information's given to you and any any ways in which you've perhaps adapted to help improve in those areas um i set a lot of reminders on my phone so i'll be like you know have i drunk two bottles of this said water bottle um sometimes you know i forget to bring my bag to training i'll i'll turn up to training and i won't have anything and i'll be like how have i done this um but it mostly like my family so my dad he'd be like do you have everything you need i'll be like i'll check i'll be like yeah so it's a lot of like double checking and, and checking stuff. And, and when I'm actually in the pool, um, my coach will be like, oh, could you change this about your technique? And I'll try it and it just won't work or it'll go wrong. And it, he just has to say it in the right way for me to understand. So he'll try and explain it to me in 10 different ways. And hopefully one of those ways will click. And right, okay. it's it's having that support with your coach, knowing that, it's not, I'm not trying, I'm not listening, but he knows that I'm, you know, I'm trying, I'm listening and we're, we're trying different things and, and, and yeah. I was going to, is, is that key for all of your support team? Of course, your mum and dad naturally will know about your abilities. You coach, you formed a very key relationship, but I suppose as you've maybe got older and the support crew, you know, I'm sure there's a physiotherapist, potentially psychologist, team managers who you're meeting for the first time. Is it important for you to get across that, this is not just me being, you know, forgetful or something like that. I understand I have to work towards this, but just so you're aware, these are sort of the things that you struggle with. Is that a key part of para-athlete's journey and explaining to new people how to best get get the best out of you? Yeah, definitely. It's I like to, because I never want people to be like offended by something I do. I'm like, like, I really didn't mean to do that. Like, or I'm really sorry I forgot your name. Or So it's always just really useful to be like, okay, I'm, I might forget to do this, I might forget to do that, or if I do this, I just probably didn't understand what you were saying. And most people are just so understanding, so it's 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 fine. Um, but it has taken a few years for me and my coach to get that strong relationship. Um, I think at first it was obviously difficult and... Yeah, but over time it's it's really we made this strong connection and especially over the lockdown speaking over like zoom calls and just really discussing everything has made it so much better. Um, and then with the, like the, obviously the British team, they're very understanding because they've had S14s in the past and they know that every S14 is a little bit different and we have sit down meetings and we discuss how they can best help me with not just training, but you know, my day-to-day -day life and and everything that I need to do. And how about then, how does that translate into competition? Because I am I think most athletes, we get nervous, don't we? I say we, you, you athletes get nervous, don't you? The bigger the stage, the bigger the performance as well as being a para-athlete, does that, is there a reassurance that you're competing against athletes who face similar challenges and it, it you know, it, you feel as though it's more of a level playing field? And equally so, is there, when it comes to a world championship or a European championship final, are those extra things maybe where you don't have as much contact with your coach that you've had to learn how to adapt with? Um, yeah. Around competitions, it's definitely a lot more reassuring. And, it's, and to me, it seems a lot more friendly um, because everyone's, you know, they know, you know, people got struggles and we all know that, you know, we've all been through stuff and, no one really like talks about it, but everyone's just so nice and kind and there's not much like, I mean, it is very competitive, but not in like a, like a mean or a rude way where like, I see like able-bodied athletes, like, I mean, it's not too common, but people like splash the other lane or they like spit in their lane. That just doesn't, <laughs> oh. yeah, I know. <laughs> Weird, uh, but that just doesn't happen in para swimming and I mean, obviously, I still get really, really nervous. And um, so, yeah, when we go to, like, big competitions such as, like, Europeans or Worlds, uh, my home programme coach can't come with me. So 
at the British squad, um, we have like a coach kind of like assigned to us and they will chat to us like via email on phone calls and every so often they'll come down to the club and just to maintain that strong relationship and they know, you know, what I'm working on, what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are. And, you know, Louise, you speak about, you know, your home coach potentially not coming with you, you know, to your international competitions. That's something I can relate to as well in tumbling. You know, we have a set of national coaches and even though our home coaches were comfortable with them, you know, our personal coaches must trust us to those national coaches when we go away. So that sort of communication, making sure, you know, you kind of, you're kind of synchronised in the way you think and the way you communicate with each other is so important in replicating what you're doing at home to what you're doing, you know, on the big, big stage. And obviously the big, big stage is coming up. Hopefully the Paralympics will be going ahead. Um, you know, you've had some great, great wins, um, the time in Sheffield and so on and so forth. Um, are you confident that you're heading into Tokyo? Can you talk about your thoughts and feelings on that? And what would it mean to you to, you know, compete at those Tokyo um, Paralympics? It mean literally everything to me like you know every single day I get up that's kind of what it's for you know the the Paralympics is the biggest stage and to compete there is just absolutely incredible such like a huge 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 dream um I don't like to like specify oh I hope mm -hmm. I get gold um course, I don't like to yeah. say anything like that I don't want to jinx it um mm -hmm. but to be honest just to go would be incredible and just to experience that I like not many people get to experience such a such a crazy thing and I think it's interesting with Covid and how it's going to all play out if you know if I get selected obviously um and how they're gonna you know deal with all the restrictions and make sure that everything's all safe and yeah but hopefully I get you know selected that's that's obviously the the main goal yeah, to actually go indeed indeed yeah you can't go and then you know win it all swim record times if you're not there so we know we've got everything crossed you know that you know you can make your dream reality you know how does the kind of point system work towards sort of qualify qualifying for a paralympics you know for tumbling you know we will have you know squads trials throughout the year and then we'll have like a big trial at the british championships where you know obviously if you win the british championships that's going to put you in great shape but even if you don't win a medal if you get good scores you'll obviously still be considered so how does that kind of work for Paralympics um, in terms of actually gaining points to hopefully qualify for those big games? This year's been a bit different um, just because of COVID. Normally there's like a competition and there's qualifying times for the competition and those qualifying times aren't too hard so a lot of people go so there's like a, a big chance of everyone having an equal chance to qualify but because of COVID they had to select people to go to the trial events um, because they couldn't have too many numbers to make sure they were safe with COVID. And so they basically picked people that were on the programme. So anyone that's on Team GB or on Swim England. And once you're at the competition, um, you have points for like your classification. So like when I finish, I'll, I'll get like roughly like maybe 800 points. And that's how close I am to the world record. But to actually qualify for, you know, a Paralympics or a world champs, there's actually a time that I need to hit. So it'd be like a, a 118. So I need to be within that time. But not only do I have to hit a time, but we have to make sure that everything else is correct. So my classification's not pending. Um, I have to do this thing called Smart Base, and that's for like Great Britain to monitor me I have to enter in every day my you know health my sessions and my land sessions so all of that any injuries anything at all and if that's not a correct percentage then they won't select me and there's just a few other things that I need to do to make sure that I've hit all that criteria um but this year was slightly different just because of Covid like one of the criterias was you must be training at a national performance centre during a lockdown. Um, so, you know, I did that because I went to Manchester. Um, so it's just, it's just making sure that you've not only just hit the time, but, you know, you've hit all those other markers that they've set out. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you speak on, um, you know, all that other criteria 
with the performance. Obviously, the performance is always going to be the most important thing. But in essence, those little criteria points are just as important because, you know, those can be grounds for you to not be selected. So making sure everything's right and everything mixes well um, and is on point is so, so important. Um, you spoke about that sort of brief training camp in Manchester. Um, was that, you know, purely, you know, just a tick box or did you learn anything from, you know, training in Manchester for was how long was it? Four months, did you say? Yeah, did you kind of like learn anything while you were there or was it just, you know, um, that tick box and you just went there, you did your job and then, you know, you came back home? Um, I mean, I initially just went out there just to make sure I ticked that box and also to continue my training. Um, with swimming, it's so important to actually be in a pool because you can't really replicate that on land. Um, but yeah, I did end up learning a lot because I was, I was living by myself. So, you know, I learned how to look after myself, how to cook, clean and all of that. And then obviously I, I picked up new skills because I had different coaches and they had different point of views. So it's, you know, it's interesting to have a different coach sometimes because they might see something that my coach doesn't. And also like different S&C coaches is, you know, they're like, oh, you know, you're not doing that quite correctly. And I was like, oh, my, like, my team at home have never said that. And so, it's always good to get a, a fresh pair of eyes. Um, yeah, indeed. But I definitely prefer being at home. Yeah, yeah. As 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 most athletes do, you know, we love our home comforts. You know, for myself, you know, I love my home tumbling track. So whenever we have to go elsewhere, whether that be to the national centre or the or a competition abroad, let's say, you know, there's always a little bit of adjustment, and sometimes that kind of messes up the balance. And it's something that obviously you'd love to avoid, but you know, naturally, you know, you're always gonna have to keep adjusting. As you know, if you only ever trained and competed at home, you know, we wouldn't be able to, you know, explore the world, explore the country like um, we're so blessed to do. Um, so with the sort of delay with the Paralympics, obviously you were expecting it to be um, in 2020, obviously the COVID pandemic hit and every, every, I don't think there's a single industry, sports, music, film that hasn't been impacted. In that sort of year that has been delayed, have you kind of, do you feel like you're, you know, you've improved without even talking about chances of, you know, winning a medal and stuff? Do you feel like you've improved as a para swimmer that is hopefully going to lead you to, you know, a better chance at, you know, being successful at, um, in Tokyo? Um, I mean, it's difficult because I'd say my fitness levels aren't as high as they was, but I'm definitely a lot stronger and my recovery techniques are a lot better. And I think I've just grown a lot as a person, you know, having to sit at home and be alone. It's made me think about, you know, the way I act, the way I, I deal with things and a lot of reflection, which I think has been really beneficial, um, which I just wouldn't have had time for if, you know, the games happened last year because then we'd have Commonwealth and Deary, mm -hmm. well, it'd still be next year, but yeah, there'd still year. be a lot of competitions going on. And so I definitely think it's definitely benefited me. Um, I just, I'm unsure if I'll swim my personal best uh, at Tokyo. It just depends on how training goes, if I get any major injuries. And obviously we're going to try and obviously control all of those, those aspects, but not... You know, I, I don't know. You know, yeah. I, obviously, I, I'm going to try my best, but mm. I can't guarantee. Yeah, like, like you say, there's so many different things. There's some athletes that, you know, they're a little bit angry. They're upset, you know, they've worked this four-year cycle to be ready for 2020. And when it didn't happen, it's like, you know, I've done all this work. And there's others, you know, that have kind of said, okay, it's another year to kind of improve, you know, reflect, like you say, you know, in like get better in different areas, maybe in the pool, maybe in SNC, flexibility, wherever it is. And there's some people that are a bit in the middle that were so ready for 2020, but have kind of accepted it and used the time to kind of improve and reflect like you have. So I think it's, you know, perfectly normal to kind of be in between both emotions. So yeah, thank you for that insight. That was brilliant. I just want to touch on one of your previous experiences, Louise. I don't know how much of this has shaped you, the athlete that you are, but obviously you were set to make your international debut in 2017 at the World Champs in Mexico. And an earthquake over there obviously pulled that rug from underneath you. Is that, I don't know, how do you look back on that experience? Has it made you stronger? I'm sure you were bitterly disappointed at the time. And then I'm certainly not trying to jinx anything, but the possibility of potentially another major champs being cancelled at the last minute. How How's that four years, I guess, uh, panned out for you in terms of your approach to looking forward to Tokyo? Obviously, it was a huge, like, tragedy. And, you know, obviously my heart goes out to all those people that are affected. And, 
it was such a mixed emotion time because I was like so excited for my first big international competition but then to then think you know this is a much bigger thing than a competition you know, these are people's lives and it was kind of a scary moment to be like I, you know obviously I really hope they're all okay but it was just a bit weird like I, I packed my bags and everything was all ready to go I think it was like a week until we went to fly out and it was just a bit it was a bit strange and then it was kind of odd that this has happened again totally different circumstances but for to going to a big competition getting all ready and then you know there's a possibility it might not happen I mean like last year they said it was going to be this year and last year was like it was difficult because when they announced it I was so like shocked and a bit like blown back to be like oh like this is not gonna actually happen um but for the worlds in 2017 um i wasn't too disappointed in just just around the the game like the the competition point of view because i didn't feel like i was quite old enough quite mature enough to go to such a big competition um and to have Europeans to be my first international big competition was probably better because it's a bit of a smaller meet. Um, there's a bit more support that can be given. And I think it actually worked out well as my career as an athlete. Good. And I know you, you've taught rightfully. I, I don't certainly want to say you're downplaying Tokyo, but you'll know yourself, you know, athletes rely on form, don't they? And the more success that you have, the more confident you come to these bigger meetings. So we're not trying to hang a gold medal around your neck, but the fact that you've proven all the major championships that you've attended, so the Europeans, and then you stepped up to the Worlds, that you can deliver on that occasion. How much are you relishing the prospect of, A, making it to the final, and then hopefully once you get yourself in the final, there is a really strong possibility that you could create a bit of history? It's exciting, very exciting. Obviously, Getting the gold at Worlds did give me a lot more confidence. Um, especially, I felt a lot more confident last year than I did this year. I feel a little bit more uncertain. There's a, a few new girls that have entered the classification. And so it's a bit more competitive, which is obviously a really, really good thing. But it just makes me a little bit more nervous. Um, I hope to deliver, but I, I can't guarantee anything. And... It's more, I think, if I can go to the, the games and just take away just being there and the experience and making a final would be incredible. I mean, it's such a shame that my family obviously can't be there to support me. But, you know, I know that they'll be watching the live stream at home and all my friends will be there as well. So it, it's not too different. It would just be instead of seeing them in the crowd waving, be like waving at a camera and then phoning them afterwards. But... um just to just share that with my family will be an incredible experience. Well, I'm sure me and Dom will be watching on live streams as well as you go to rooting for you. And I guess speaking on behalf of all athletes as well, because that's, again, you Paris athletes are bonded by so many things, but all of us living through this pandemic, again, whatever the outcome is, just to be there and get through the games, how much do you think you'll reflect on this period in your career to think, you know, moving forwards, you know, hopefully 18 months time when the pandemic's a long memory, the, all the things you've had to battle with, the change in circumstances, moving to Manchester, the lack of adjustments to your training routine. How much of a better athlete are you coming out the other side of it and moving into those future para games, future world championships, future Commonwealth games, do you feel? I think it's definitely made me a lot more of a tougher athlete, um, a lot more robust to change and you know, situations. Um, I think it would definitely help me as I go on and it would definitely be something I would look back on and be like, you know, how did I survive not being in the pool for, you know, four months? And it's definitely a strange experience. Um, even the games will be different with the way that social distancing and how we get our food at the hotel and stuff like that. And It'll be interesting, fingers crossed, if I go to another games to see the difference between Tokyo and Paris. Paris, yeah. Yeah, Paris. Because um, all the older athletes are talking about, oh, it's such a shame this is not happening, such a shame that this is not happening. But I, I don't know no different. This is the, you know my first Paralympic Games. I don't, I don't know what will be different at the next. 
And, and I suppose there's that, you know, athletes' careers can be very short. They can be over with injury, unfortunately, in, in the blink of an eye. But the fact that you're still 20, you've achieved so much, Louise. Do you, I don't know, do you look at the next decade? How long-term of thinking are you? I know there's baby steps along the way. You've talked about Paris, but 2028, you know, into 2032. Are you looking that far ahead in terms of your longevity? Um, I don't like to put, like, a, an ending on it, but... I'm definitely looking at Paris and then I'll decide kind of when I get there, you know, am I willing to continue? Is this something that I want to continue? And personally, I, I want to like end on a high. So when I do end, I want to make sure that, you know, I, I chose a good time to end. Um, but definitely want to go to Paris and because I feel like there's so much more I can improve on. Um, there's so much more I can do and I want to try and give the other events a bit more of a, a go at because it's mostly just the 100 meter breaststroke. But I'm wondering, you know, could I do the 200 free? Would that be a good event for me? So it kind of, we'll just see, we'll just see as time goes on. And you speak about, I kind of like that, um, that you spoke about maybe even venturing into other events because I feel as though sometimes, you know, in sort of sports where, um, you know, there's like sort of different categories. So athletics, there's, you know, 100 metres, 200 metres, 400 metres. A lot of athletes, you know, quite, you know, rightfully obviously stay in their lane and kind of become a master at um, one or two particular things. So kind of where does that kind of mindset come from? You know, that and is that something you've always thought of maybe venturing into different distances and trying to, you know, make a standing and maybe even potentially dominating, you know, different races, you know? Um, where did that mindset kind of come from and stem from? So... In para swimming, there's only like certain events you can swim. There's five IPC events, and they're the events that you race at Paralympics. Uh, so before I was a para swimmer, I actually raced the 100 meters fly. And at the time that I joined as a para swimmer, that wasn't an event. And then they added it in. And then by that time, I hadn't swam fly for such a long time, I was not regular at it anymore. Um, so because I've had to change my event before, I think it just it's just gives me something new to focus on. Once I feel like, you know, I've got the most out I can out of my 100 breaststroke, you know, just be interesting to see what else I could do in other events. And especially in swimming, like freestyle is kind of your like warm up swim down strokes. I do swim a lot of freestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little, just a little fantasy question, because I love these kind of fantasy questions. So you've got two options. You can become, let's say, Paralympic champion in, you know, one of your um, three cat types of races, so that's the breaststroke, the butterfly, and the freestyle. Or you can win a mixture of silver and bronzes across the breaststroke, butterfly, and freestyle. Which would you rather? Which would which would be better for Louise? I don't know. Probably. It's so hard to say. Yeah. Probably just just the coming the champion just in the hundred yeah, breaststroke one. means more. But mm. if there's a time where I believe I could possibly get the gold in one event and maybe get a gold in another event that would mm. be that would be very very special 100 we look forward to seeing if you could push yourself honestly we do because that would be amazing um you know getting a gold in one and then venturing into another and you know trying to dominate in that that would be so amazing so yeah we wish you absolutely all the best if you ever do decide to sort of venture and try and um go into different types of races i just wanted to touch on something you know that i you know think a lot about um as an athlete as well um and then and it's sort of the blend between having that natural talent and hard work. So, you know, so many different athletes have done interviews, podcasts, and some credit credit it all the hard work, you know. And at the same time, some say, you know, I was, you know, blessed with a brilliant natural ability. And obviously, combined with the hard work, that's how I managed to get to the top in whatever they've achieved. So it'd just be interesting, you know, to hear from you, someone who's, you know, has said they had a natural talent for swimming, but has had to work quite hard, you know, socially in the pool to really get to that level. What you kind of think of that mix, you know, do you credit more of, you know, your rise to the top, you know, being an elite swimmer now, para swimmer to your natural ability, or do you credit more your hard work or is it just a perfect mix of the two? What do you kind of think? Um, I don't think it's necessary to have a natural talent. I think it's, you know, 99.999% know all the hard work that you put in but having that natural talent does just make it a little bit easier to transition into a sport um mm. and you know any sort of young athlete out there 
with that sort of natural talent? Would your message just be, you know, even if you feel like you have that natural talent and you're naturally ahead of the other people around you, you know, don't rest on that laurel, keep putting in that hard work, keep looking for the percents. Would that be your message to, you know, the young athletes out of there that may be listening to this? Yeah, definitely. Hard work is everything. You know, if you have that natural talent, brilliant. See how far you can, you know, really get out of that with the hard work that you put in. I'm just going to think, Louise, is there an example maybe in your career if you think that it's maybe, I don't know, if you're in a bit of a turning point where you thought, I'm maybe just relying a bit too much on my own ability here and I need to work? Was there a sort of time where, obviously, on your you, you, very successful career to date, that you th- you've maybe thought, actually, I need to go all in, I've got to be 100% on this and not take any shortcuts? Um, I think definitely a big point was moving from Hatfield, or well, moving to Hatfield, because I, I didn't want to move. I wanted just to stay at Wellin. I thought, you know, maybe if I just stay here, maybe I could still achieve. But realistically, that was never really possible. There just wasn't the amount of time in the pool. So I really had to, you know, push myself and be like, you know, if I really do want to become really good and not just rely solely on that talent that I have at that, that small club and really push it into a performance club, then I do, I do need to make that big step. And I think a consistent theme you've touched about is, I suppose, uh, right. I don't know if it's just been consciously, but you talked about the move to Manchester, you talk about the move to Hatfield, is that taking yourself out of a comfort environment to a certain degree just to stretch your abilities? Because again, I'm sure you're working hard at Hatfield, but then when you go to Manchester again, it's just exposing you to maybe taking that hard work up another level as well. Yeah, definitely. It can be so easy when you're just at home doing the same thing every day to kind of not put that 110% in then that change of environment that change of coaching and can really push yourself harder and especially going to Manchester it was like a very serious step I'm like you know I'm really taking this you know going to the Paralympics really really seriously that I'm gonna you know spend all this money on hotel bills and and you know go away from you know my family my dogs my friends everything just for this one this one thing so Louise, we've got some quick fire questions for you just to try and get to know you more. So you ready to go? Yeah, ready. All right. First question. Childhood hero? Um, probably Ellie Simmons. Biggest fear? Heights. Yeah. No. We can, are heights. you a roller coaster girl? I do roller? like roller coasters. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I thought we were going to share a common box because I'm terrified of roller coasters and I've got this son <laughs> who's an absolute daredevil. And I know in 10 years time, we're going to be on that collision course of me <laughs> petrified in a roller coaster queue and him being like, dad, I can't go on unless you can do it with me. <laughs> you can do roller coasters. That's more than me. Because uh, the... you're like sitting down, you have like the thing over you. Oh, you, you feel more safe on a roller <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I don't like rock climbing. That's what really scares me. Or the treetop. Mm. Yeah, yeah, walking. <laughs> okay, the one thing you want to achieve more than anything. Uh, Paralympic champion, definitely. Nice. Best feeling you've ever had in sport? Uh, the gold medal at World Champs. Nice, nice. Uh, what's the easiest way to get under your skin to annoy you? If I was trying to annoy you, Louise, what would be the <laughs> my go-to? Um, being uh, ignored, that's like pet peeve. I really, really hate that. What's your most annoying trait? <sighs> Probably I'm quite like persistent. Like if... If I want to do something, I'm gonna I'm gonna nag you about it. <laughs> <laughs> Not letting it go till it gets yeah. done. Okay, I like that. Okay, so Louise, you're on death row, unfortunately, and you've got your last three course meal. We won't talk about the crime that you've committed, but uh, what's your last three course meal? So if you uh, you have your last set of three meals, what would you go for? Starter, main, and dessert. Probably like start for like some sort of like flatbread pizza kind of thing, um, and then. It depends, but today I'm feeling sushi. If it wasn't today, maybe maybe a steak, but today is sushi. And then for pudding, probably... That's a hard decision. Um, Probably like a brownie with like a big dollop of ice cream. Nice, nice. And obviously, as an elite athlete, we can take a lot from other different sports. What is the other sport you learn the most from, apart from obviously para-swimming? Um... I don't know. I mean, I watch a lot of different sports. I really like tennis and uh, ice hockey is probably my favourite sport to watch. I don't know. Just every every single sport has their own aspect of, you know, resilience and how they deal with different things. Obviously, 
in ice hockey, injuries are probably a lot more common and getting over them is a lot more difficult. And there's so many aspects of skill that they need to learn. They need to learn to like skate and also play hockey at the same time, which is huge multitasking that I just could never do. <laughs> so I don't know if you maybe answered this already then. So uh, what if you weren't a professional swimmer, uh, what sport would you like to be a professional in that wasn't swimming? Probably like track cycling. I think they're really cool. Nice. Uh, what the speed is it? Is it just yeah, <laughs> the speed and they just like their legs are just so huge. They're just so strong. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Obviously, Luke, both young athletes, twenty, our sort of generation, very you know, usually very tech savvy, socially savvy. What's the most used app on your phone? Uh, Instagram by far. <laughs> same, same, <laughs> same. Who's the most important person in your life? We're getting a bit deep and meaningful now. Uh, probably my dad. Uh, he just supports me through everything. Swimming, school, you know, jobs, career, driving lessons, everything. Shout out to dad. <laughs> uh, again, I'm getting the deep and meaningful ones here. Uh, issue you care most passionately about? Uh, equality. And that's like race, religion, you know, disability, male and female, like everything. I think everyone should be equal no matter what, you know. We all have a heart, we all have skin, do you know what I mean? We're all the same. Amen. 100%, 100%. And I'm getting the kind of more theoretical, silly ones. <laughs> What's the superpower you'd like to have the most? Oh, pause time. I thought about this so much. So okay. I pause time halfway through my race, I can... Get my breath back again, then I can go again. <laughs> that is very smart. Very smart. And you stand on the rostrum, no, you know, no compassion whatsoever. You just be like, yeah, just, you know, I don't feel any guilt about how I just froze that race and just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your favourite city in the world? I don't know if this is somewhere you visit or you'd like to visit, but what's your favourite city, would you say, Louis? It's quite boring, just I really like London. <laughs> hometown, hometown. You say you learned how to cook in Manchester. What's your signature dish to cook now? Probably like fajitas. That's probably oh, like my yeah. go-to, yeah. Yeah, some chicken, some peppers, all of that yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Nice. Well, I think I read about that. That's obviously quick and easy for athletes as well, isn't it? You can get a lot of your good nutrition in there and one for the one for the backpack. Um, you've obviously, we know you're a big fan of dogs, but if you could choose an animal, Louise, which animal would you be? Um... Maybe a dolphin. I did. I thought swimmer. Yeah, I thought there was yeah. going to be a whale or a dolphin thrown in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean they're, they're quick, probably a lot faster than I am. So that that'd be quite cool. <laughs> What's the one sporting moment you would like to witness in person if you could travel back in time? Um, again, it's probably quite boring, but uh, watching Michael Phelps compete. Mm. You know, any of his gold medals would. Any of them. Yeah. Yeah, you've got quite a few different ones to choose from. How, how many yeah. gold medals has Michael Phelps won? Honestly, I don't know, but there's always that famous picture of his arms out and he's got all the, the medals hanging off of them. Which is, wow. Yeah. Insane. Crazy. And then it's an it's a fitting, uh, fitting point to end it on. So this is the last question, Louise. Who is the GOAT? So who's the greatest sports person of all time in your eyes? Um, I think personally... There's a girl in Paris called Alice Tai, and she won six gold medals at Worlds and she broke six world records, which wow. I just think is incredible to not only get, you know, all the golds, but also break all the world records at the same time. Yeah, incredible. Very impressive, very impressive. Men I can't stop. Men I can't stop. So, wow, big, big thank you for Louise for taking the time from a crazy schedule to join us for this episode of the Sports Aid Vault. Thank you, listener. Again, you can find more about Sports Aid's work and the athletes they support by visiting sportsaid.org.uk or on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Team Sports Aid. The Sports Aid Vault podcast is produced with Hogarth Worldwide and Gramercy Park Studios. And our theme music is courtesy of Vidal Riley. So massive thanks to him. You can check out all his latest releases on his Spotify. Spotify.